Farmers in Maine, New Mexico, and now Michigan are dealing with the aftermath of the detection of a forever chemical contamination on their operations. What's next for these affected producers, and what could that mean for the future? That's today on Field Posts. and Progressive Farmer podcast that dives deeper into the most important trends in agriculture to explore the business's cutting edge. I'm your host, Sarah Mock. Since the now infamous occurrence of a class of compounds described as forever chemicals on a West Virginia farm years ago led to devastating consequences for animals and humans alike, EPA, state regulators, and scientists have been detecting these chemicals across the country in soil, water, and even human blood. High concentrations of what's known as PFAS chemicals in some areas have led authorities to prohibit farmers in multiple states from selling their goods, from dairy and meat, from exposed cattle, to produce. DTN Ag Policy Editor Chris Clayton has been keeping an eye on this evolving story in agriculture, and specifically on the policy responses from USDA, EPA, and state and federal lawmakers. He joins us today to unpack his latest reporting on the topic, to shed some light on why there's so little information available on what the future might hold, and to flag what he'll be watching as multiple cases in different states move forward, right after this word from our sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by MyDTN. In today's environment, it's essential, more than ever, to get the most current and accurate information to help save your valuable resources and continue to be profitable. Get access to all the information you need to deal with this change from DTN. As the leading independent trusted source of actionable insights and market information, MyDTN gives you accurate weather forecasts, the most extensive database of grain bids, and the most timely news and analysis from our award-winning news team. These features and more are available 24-7 via desktop, laptop, and any mobile device to be with you on the go. Learn more at MyDTN.com and start a free 14-day trial. Now, back to the show. DTN Ag Policy Editor Chris Clayton joins us today to talk about a story that's been making headlines locally and nationally for years, but that is just starting to get some serious attention in agriculture. Chris, you took a trip up to Michigan and you ran into someone there, maybe unexpectedly, who is having some issues with PFAS. Give us a little bit of the background on how you got involved in telling this story. Well, I had seen this cattle producer in in central Michigan. The state of Michigan had, back in January, banned him from selling any meat off of his operation or selling his cattle. And he didn't really talk to anybody, any reporters about that after that. He made a simple statement that he was cooperating with authorities, but that was back in January. And when I knew I was going to go to Michigan for a few days, I reached out to him and he agreed to visit with me. And and he's still not able to sell his, sell his meat or his cattle. He was, he built his business direct selling to people. And now basically the only people he's been able to sell any livestock to has been Michigan State University for research on PFAS. And I'm familiar with the problems with 
PFAS because I have also written about dairy operations in New Mexico and in Maine that also had been banned from selling any of their products because they were had high high levels of PFAS in their milk. So it's a it's a complicated problem, but it's not one that's been reported on very extensively. What is PFAS exactly, and how is it? creating this problem? Where did it come from for these farmers? There, there are two acronyms, PFOS, P-F-O-S, and PFAS, P-F-A-S. They're, you know, essentially we use them interchangeably, but you have this mix of about 9,000 chemicals that are all used in different kinds of industry. And they're great chemicals for industry because they handle high temperatures and and other environmental challenges very well. So they're great for manufacturing, but that makes them also extraordinarily long lasting. They call them forever chemicals. That's what generically call them because they don't break down. So what makes them great for manufacturing different things makes them terrible once they get into say the water or the soil. And we all apparently now have these chemicals in our body. They have been used, they were used for years for Teflon, for instance, among the different things. In Michigan, you know, in a state that has a lot of auto manufacturing, they're used in a variety of different ways. The the source traceback for the Michigan farmer was a company that made chrome items for cars that obviously attach very well. They basically made the chrome aspects for auto manufacturing, and then they were taking their wastewater, was going into a municipal wastewater system. Everywhere around the country, not just Michigan, this happens a lot of different places, farmers forever have used city municipal sludge as a fertilizer. So you have the wastewater that has these forever chemicals in it. The sludge from that wastewater is taken out of the wastewater treatment plant. The sludge is applied to the fields and that those chemicals, the PFAS chemicals are now in those fields forever, basically. They're in the water, they absorb up into the crops, whether it's maybe alfalfa or corn or whatever else. The cattle eat them, cattle graze on them, the cattle get them into them, and they are suddenly in the food system. And we haven't done a lot of focus government-wise in terms of what exactly is the food situation when it comes to, to PFAS chemicals. But we know in Maine, particularly, Maine has had a lot of farms, not just dairy farms, but organic vegetable farms and others that have tested their soil and found very high concentrations of PFAS and basically been told to stop selling their products. Maine legislature banned the use of sludge for as a fertilizer product. After maybe farmers there had been using it for 50, 60 years it's now banned. Michigan has a certain testing level now for, for sewage sludge before it can be used as a fertilizer product now. But those are there are a few states that have acted on that. There are a lot of debates now in several other states about just what exactly is the concentration of PFAS that they have in their water systems and in, 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 in the sludge in the, that comes out of municipal water supplies. 
you talked a little bit about Maine and you mentioned that there's also been some folks in New Mexico that are dealing with kind of similar problems. In terms of having these lawmakers say or regulators say that they this these products can be sold what are the risks to to livestock to people are these is there a sense of that these farmers are at risk just for handling the soil or handling the livestock or is there any kind of certainty around what the risks are because of this contamination well what we know is PFAS has certain there are certain aspects and health problems that are directly related to to PFAS problems. The issue is there are a lot of medical problems that, that are differently linked to to these PFAS chemicals, kidney, testicular cancer, fertility, fertility problems in women, diabetes, liver damage, just a lot of problems with the hu- immune system depending on how much you've been exposed to these chemicals. There are a few places in the country that have been, maybe they were their water systems or their wells were right next to one of these big chemical plants where they have had extraordinarily high levels of these chemicals in, in their bodies. And there was a young farmer couple in Maine that the New York Times wrote about. They were they were vegetable farmers. They did blood tests after they found out about this, found that they had pretty high levels in their systems as well. So it seems like you're exposed to a risk, some of them relatively unknown at the moment. And finally, just really within the past week or so, EPA has moved forward with some, some rulemaking on PFAS and water systems around the country that has been in, EA has been in the process of making these seven, eight, 10 years, and they've been pressured by lawmakers in different states to, to act on this. So finally seeing something happening from the EPA on the water, drinking water level is a big deal. I want to get into kind of the policy aspect of this, because it seems like there's a number of different states and potentially state lawmakers, regulators involved. There's also, I assume, the USDA and perhaps the Biden administration getting involved. I wonder if you could just bring us up to date on how how are things being dealt with as they come up and who are these regulatory bodies that are coming in and shutting people down? Mostly it's been at the state level, at different levels. It was the same thing in New Mexico. And the New Mexico situation was a little bit different because, again, the PFAS chemicals have been used in firefighting for a long period of time. And so the dairy that was particularly involved in that situation in New Mexico was right off of Cannon Air Force Base, where apparently that's where the Air Force trains their firefighters. So you had a lot of training with those chemicals, and it got into the aquifer system there. And oddly enough, though, right outside of Cannon Air Force Base, the whole area around Cannon Air Force Base is filled with dairies right out of Clovis, New Mexico. Just a lot of dairies right there. They all use that aquifer and one dairy farm in particular, right out, literally right across the street from the road from the Air Force Base. They were the ones that tested with a high level of positive. So it was state officials that really came in first in Maine and, and, and New Mexico on these dairy operations. And the federal government wouldn't make a kind of decision. The FDA and USDA, still neither one of them have any kind of standards on PFAS chemicals. And it's been going on for a while because I wrote about the New Mexico dairy back in 2019. And at that time, 
it was still FDA and USDA were just beginning at that time four years ago to say they were looking to make standards on PFAS. Four years later, I can write the same exact sentence because neither one of them have done anything directly in terms of setting any kind of guidelines for, for PFAS. The guy in Michigan, the cattle producer, so the state officials came in and told him he needed to stop selling his products. When I talked to him in May, he had not had any kind of engagement with anybody from USDA. You would think that somebody from the Farm Service Agency in Michigan would have said, hey, the Turns out that Michigan banned this guy from selling his meat. Should we do something? Should we go talk to this guy? Should we have a conversation with somebody about it? Nothing like that. He said he had no conversation with anybody from FDA, USDA. FSIS, nobody said, hey, we should go figure out what's going on here. I just find it puzzling. And when I reached out to USDA Initially, the press office about it, I got nothing. They didn't even respond to my a couple initial emails about it. They So I had to file some FOIAs with USDA. And, and it was interesting because they hadn't not, they had, not only had they not responded to me, but they had not responded to the main congressional delegation about it. And so the only time it finally got into the point that Shelley Pingree, Congresswoman from Maine, while I was up in Michigan, they were holding a, an appropriations hearing and Shelley Pingree put Vilsack on the spot in a, an appropriations hearing about it because the Maine delegation had been writing letters to him since last October, at least. To, to get engaged with that, to come to Maine, to talk to somebody, to do something. And I'd gotten a FOIA. They finally emailed, they finally wrote a letter back to Senator Susan Collins, like the day before Vilsack was supposed to testify before Collins' committee. Literally, they emailed a letter to her at like midnight when the hearing was at like nine in the morning kind of thing. But, uh, and so I didn't, and I couldn't even get the letter from USDA. I had to get it from Susan Collins office. But <clears throat> if you look at the map of where environmental working group, for instance, has mapped out where PFAS contamination is really bad. Michigan came to me three or four years when I first wrote the stories back four years ago, because I could tell from looking at their map that PFAS was a problem all over the state of Michigan. So there's another, you look at another state, North Carolina, much like Michigan, has PFAS problems all over the place. And their state has been trying to do something with their drinking water. The state lawmakers are heavily engaged in North Carolina on their water. We got another thing going on in, in, in North Carolina. North Carolina is the second biggest pork producing state in the country. They use water somewhere in their in, in producing their hogs. They use water in processing their hogs. And I can't get USDA to tell me anything about what they've done in terms of testing on PFAS in, in the meat. I know they've done some testing with beef because a guy from USDA had put a presentation to EPA about what USDA was doing, and somebody else FOIA'd EPA, and I could find the EPA FOIA. But if I ask USDA the same kind of questions, I get no response whatsoever from them about it. 
It's they deliberately, intentionally don't want to talk about this subject. Uh, PFAS, yeah, well, maybe you should Google it. So it's really frustrating because we know there's a, there's some sort of element and problem here that's tied that ties the water to um, to what's going on the farms. But it's if you're not looking for it, you're not going to find the problem. And the only times I've seen anybody at USDA publicly have to talk about it is when uh, Shelly Pingree and uh, Susan Collins put Vilsack on the spot in congressional hearings about it. And that's it. It's, it's supposedly they're doing something in PFAS, but they are really taking their own sweet time and they're not really sharing much. There certainly is not a lot of transparency, no transparency really at all from USDA on this topic. Do you have any sense or have you spoken to any experts who identify why USDA might be dragging their feet or why they might be slow to have a response on this? It's a great question. I do not know the backdrop and eventually, hopefully I will get a chance to to talk to somebody at, at USDA more about, about that. What I know is back in late October, the Biden administration put out this whole all of government supposedly strategic roadmap to how they were going to deal with PFAS. And they made a point of highlighting not only EPA, but also USDA and FDA were going to be doing more to to look at this in terms of food production. They laid out all of the stuff they said USDA is doing. So when I asked USDA about what the White House put out, they acted like they had no input in that whatsoever. Uh, we don't control what the, what the White House puts out. The White House is saying that it's like a merry-go-round. It's like the White House is saying, you guys are doing this. Why can't you talk about it? I do know that even before the Biden administration, the Trump administration had a task force with all of the different agencies involved in it meeting, talking about this stuff. And that's how I found that out stuff through uh, some FOIAs that other people had filed with EPA about it. The Biden, the, the USDA, their career people have been involved in, in looking at different stuff involving PFAS. They are just completely unwilling to, to provide any information about it. And I'm at a loss. I, I, the, and like I said, the only way sometimes you find out anything is going on is if you can find a FOIA that is that has been filed with EPA on this stuff. And that's a whole different criticism because EPA, you can go and you can find almost every FOIA filed with EPA online, but at USDA, it's like a complete black hole online trying to figure out, you know, what freedom of information requests are out there, what was the response from the Department of Agriculture agencies, et cetera. USDA is, in my opinion, the one of the worst agencies and the departments in the federal government when it comes to freedom of information requests. And I hope to God somebody from USDA hears this. And I hope they complain high heaven that I said this publicly somewhere, but you know, they are a disaster when it comes to freedom of information. Think about it. I looked through EPA's FOIA requests to find out what USDA was doing because that was the only way I could find out anything. 
I'm curious from conversations that you've had with the farmer in Michigan, with the folks in Maine or the folks in New Mexico, is there any sense that you get about what they think there any recourse that they might have? Are they filing lawsuits? Are they trying to get USDA to take action or deal with the EPA? Is there any sense of where this might be going for those individual producers? I know the farmer in, in New Mexico, he was paid basically to euthanize all of his animals. And he had more than one specific dairy farm. He was able to basically move his operation off of that site. I know the other dairy farms in the area, they were, they were all basically, I think they were given an indemnity essentially to put in some very expensive charcoal filtering systems for their operations to filter their water before they, before their cows drink it. So they've done some stuff there. I I said, I know that in in Maine, the Maine congressional delegation has been pleading with USDA for some support and help for those farmers up there because they have found problems in multiple places, a lot of different farmers. And I just recently saw some stuff about Vermont as well. But you you have these smaller in, in the Northeast, Vermont, Maine, etc. You have these smaller dairy operations, not like the one in New Mexico that was about 4,000 head. In, in Maine, you're talking 200 head dairy operations, things like that. They don't certainly have the resources. And, and when you lose, when you're told basically you can't farm that ground anymore, what are you supposed to be doing about it? So there are a lot of smaller farmers up there in, certainly in Maine that are up in the air about what they're supposed to do. Their ground is contaminated. And I have yet to hear any great recourse or uh, support from, from the federal side. I know the states, the side, there have been resources and funds set aside in different ways, but it's, it's really an expensive proposition for a state to try to pay indemnities and that sort of thing for these farmers losing all of their income Seems like maybe this is a bit of an active story. I'm curious as you, as the summer wears on, as 2022 continues, what will you be watching in terms of, are you expecting some announcements from EPA? Are you expecting to hear more from USDA? What, where do you expect this story to go? That's a great question. I really don't know. I, I, I don't get to spend all of my time and resources just focusing on one story all the time. There's all, there's so many different things going on out there in agriculture at the moment, I would like to focus and in, in delve into this more. I know it's a complicated subject. I know other journalists around the country are also diving deeply into this. And I, in a sense, piggyback a bit on what they're doing. I found out about the Michigan farmer situation because of the reporting that was done throughout Michigan. The Michigan Detroit Free Press and others have done extensive articles on water contamination and soil and ground contamination in their state. And I just watch and gauge what's going on in those different areas. I've seen that, I know that there's a big, huge debate in North Carolina about it because I've been reading some of the articles that come out of there, but I get a little more closely and paid attention to it when it comes to finding problems in the food supply. But the issue of sewage sludge being used as a fertilizer product is another one where you would think USDA would be involved in different ways. And so how do you 
ensure that the local farmers, that the communities, their states are testing to ensure that you're not applying toxic chemicals to the ground. One of the things that got me engaged in the Michigan story was an, was some analysis from Environmental Working Group that they projected maybe 20 million acres have sewage sludge applied to them annually. That's a lot of farm ground that could potentially be contaminated. And it puts a lot of risk at these farmers. The guy in Michigan, it's not just his, his cattle. He has to buy feed for the cattle now because he can't feed them from the alfalfa and corn that he's been growing forever today on that ground because the ground is what is really contaminated. I always like to throw in a little opportunity at the end to say, tell us a little bit about some other stories you're working on. What should people be on the lookout for? At the moment, seeing that planting is wrapped up, we thought that things were going to look a little worse in terms of some states like North Dakota, South Dakota, and a few others. And maybe prevented planting isn't going to be as bad this year as we initially thought. They were able to get into the ground late and, and do some planting. The Ukraine situation comes up almost daily because of the impacts on global food supply. And, and how do we really address that enough in terms of our reporting in the United States when we're really kind of watching Ukraine from afar, but trying to gauge just where the federal government is applying its resources when it comes to helping those countries that are going to be struggling with food. One of the things that if you look at that, the countries that are mostly going to be impacted because of Ukraine, it turns out we don't really export very much agricultural products to any of those countries. How we get our food aid tied into moving over there is an issue. Of course, now the Senate Agriculture Committee has advanced a couple bills when it comes to cattle marketing and and seeing just since the Senate Ag Committee moved them, I got to believe there must be some sort of commitment to get those bills on the floor since they passed out a committee. So we'll see what happens with uh, those uh, cattle market reform legislation pieces. One of the things I'm working on, kind of a feature long-term, I've been trying to do a piece on this for a long time, is urban schools and agriculture. And we have a lot of schools around the country now that have a lot of kids in cities that are involved in the agricultural programs. And I've been trying to piece together something on, on some of that, learning a little more as I go along. FFA now is no longer just the kids in the the rural, smallest rural schools whose moms and dads are also already farmers. Now you have the biggest FFA programs in, in some states in the country are all in, in cities. And those programs are taking off. These kids are, I was just uh, talking to somebody about the Wichita, Kansas, where they have a school there that has nearly 300 kids enrolled in agricultural programs in one way or another. I had gone to a school in Omaha that had about 150 kids in all in FFA, basically the biggest FFA chapter in the state of Nebraska. You can read Chris's extended coverage of PFAS and read up to the minute reporting on all things ag policy at dtnpf.com or in the monthly DTN Progressive Farmer magazine. This episode of Field Post was brought to you by the team at DTN Progressive Farmer, with special thanks to Chris Clayton. This episode was produced and edited by me, Sarah Mock, with support by Greg Hillier and Kylie Swanson. 
And a big thanks to all of you for listening. If you like the show, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And until then, remember, the future of farming is here. This episode of Field Post is brought to you by DTN Ag Weather Station. Are you looking to get more accurate, hyper-local weather information? By gathering weather and agronomic data directly from your own fields, DTN Ag Weather Station supports you when making targeted decisions around expensive or high-risk activities like chemical applications and irrigation. DTN's Ag Weather Station can be purchased for as low as $9 a month depending on your current customer status with DTN. If you're looking to increase your weather accuracy while saving time, please visit DTN.com.